do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. In this interview, we'll talk about democratization of impact investing in regenerative agriculture. Why land security over a long period of time is key to soil health and sustainability of farms. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture, more depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! So welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kun Vasayan, your host. Today I'm joined by Kevin Egolf, Chief Financial Officer of Iroquois Valley Farms, a restorative farmland finance company providing land access to organic family farmers with a specific focus on the next generation. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me. So to start, as I always do, with a personal question, uh, what brings you to the space? What brings you to farming? What brings you to the future of farming and, and regenerative agriculture? I think my path follows the path of a lot of people that are focused on sustainable ag, and that that is through food. And I really became connected more personally to farming and agriculture through eating. And it started when I left college and had to start making food for myself. I was very quickly drawn to what I thought tasted better, seemed fresher, from the vendors at the farmer's market in New York City. And over the course of several years, I started focusing on a more sustainable diet, healthy food, supporting farmers. All the while, I was working in the finance industry in New York City. And a few years into that job, actually about six, seven years into that sort of career path, I decided that that was not what I wanted to do long term, at least the finance application that I was doing in investment banking and private equity. And I had become over that same time period, as I mentioned, really supportive of farmers and the concept of growing healthy food really <laughs> excited me. So I took a apprenticeship on a rooftop farm in New York City for a season and very quickly realized that I was not going to be in production agriculture. That was not going to be my strong suit. While I was still very much drawn into the concept of business and finance. And I was very fortunate to start working around that time during this transition period for Iroquois Valley Farms, which 
has a very unique connection in that it is supporting sustainable agriculture and the methods that are doing it is is using somewhat traditional finance concepts, although the way we apply them are non-traditional and supporting these farmers. So I sort of was able to combine my passion and interest for sustainable agriculture and food with my experience and background in finance. In a nutshell, you have been around quite a bit, I think. I saw 2004, 2006 or something, mm-hmm. which has been a while. What What is it currently doing? Uh, what do people know it of? And, and how do you help these organic family farmers to scale or to grow? So very simply, Iroquois Valley Farms is an organic farmland real estate investment trust. A real estate investment trust is just a fancy word for a special type of company that only owns and manages real estate assets. So we specifically invest in organic farmland investments. The way we do that is a little bit different than what might be more traditional investing. Our focus very specifically is around supporting organic family farmers with land access. So the fact that we are buying and leasing land or providing mortgage financing to these organic farmers is is more the, the method of our goal to help support the family farmers that are doing things the right way grow their existing organic business. So we've raised private capital from over 300 investors in the you know 10 plus years we've been operating. And we use that money to uh, support these farmers, as I mentioned, buy farmland and give them long-term leases. Or in the past couple of years, we started a mortgage financing program to support farmers that aren't getting the right access to capital via traditional lenders. So basically, if I can summarize the two approaches, either you buy land close to or nearby successful organic farmers and lease the land to them for a long term, or you help them acquiring that type of land for them as they are they're scaling up. Exactly. That's the exact model. The one important item to note is that we are not speculators in the sense that we see a farm for sale and say, oh, this would be great for an organic farmer. Our business model is built first for the farmer. So we like to say that we're farmer first in that we develop relationships with these farmers prior to working with them. And the farmer brings us the opportunity. This way, we don't have to be knowledgeable about everything agriculture in the United States or everything organic agriculture in the United States we want to work with existing farmers that are already talented and help them grow when they need our assistance. Yeah. So for instance, I'm running a farm in upstate New York. I get to know you guys. I'm interacting. And the moment I can see my neighbor wanting to retire, or I see an opportunity in my area that would work really well for my farm or my operation, that's the moment I I get in touch with you seri- more seriously and, and we get to work basically to see if we can acquire the land and scale. Exactly. We can acquire, I can acquire, you can acquire, depending on, on the, the structure, but to scale my, my operation. That's exactly right. And <laughs> it's funny, the, the example that you cited, we get that conversation all the time. Farmer calls us, yeah, three of my neighbors are going to be retiring in the next three to five years, I just wanted to talk to you, learn about what you're doing. And then it might be another year and a half 
before the second conversation happens with that farmer. Like, yeah, my neighbor told me that, you know, he or she is thinking about this being their last season and looking to sell. And I'm sort of the first one in line that they'd like to, to sell to. So that's exactly, it's definitely a long lead time. A lot of these sales are private and localized and you wouldn't even know about them if you didn't have that relationship with the farmer up front. Yeah, it's not that there's a, a public website or a public marketplace where you can find these things. Exactly. And so this relationship, I mean, they're building over time. How, how much land have you helped acquire? Have you acquired? How much money have you raised, if that's public, to have a, a sense of scale? Yeah, so right now we're working with uh, over 35 farm families. We've made over 50 farmland investments. And that's covering about uh, 10,000 acres. Uh, and right now the REIT is around $50 million in asset size, uh, U.S. dollars, that is. And between brackets, just farmland, are you interested or are you helping some of these farmers on the local processing side? On, on what, 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 what should I envision there? Is it mainly farmland, access to farmland that you are helping to establish? Yeah, we... we are pretty much exclusively focused on helping with the land access piece. And that is intentionally by design. Um, one, we don't want to be the smartest farmer in the room. We want to partner with the smartest farmer in the room. So we don't necessarily have all the agricultural knowledge that these farmers have that we're working with. We work with mostly multi-generational farm families meaning the farmer we're working with, their parents were farmers, their grandparents were farmers, uh, sometimes going back six plus generations. So on average, these farmers that we're working with have over 100 plus years of ingrained family farming experience uh, through these multiple generations. They are smarter than we are going to be production systems that work for the areas they're going to be. And the systems that, that work in upstate New York are going to be different than the systems that work in Montana and what works in north central Illinois. And the markets are different. So we can't be an expert on all places. What we can be an expert in is developing strong and healthy relationships with these farm families and supporting them. And to ask an obvious question, but why would they come to you instead of a local bank? Is that an, an issue at all for you in terms of uh, competition, basically, as investors? Uh, absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that farmers can, you know, access capital and access land. Uh, the two differentiating factors for us on our buy and lease side of the business, which is about 70% of our assets, is that we are giving long-term leases to these farmers leases that they can count on. We are a landowner that wants to be support their specific operation, not any operation. So while we are trying to do everything at a fair market value, we're also trying to do it in a way that supports the existing farmer's business. A lot of leases in the United States are year-long leases where the farmer doesn't have security provide these long-term leases. They can invest in the soil. They can invest in getting that organic certification and know that they're going to reap the benefits for, for a long term. Um, a lot of times the farmers that we're, we're working with, you know, have these relations, long-standing relationships with native owners. 
but at some point those landowners need to sell. And then the next buyer may not be, they might be just interested in, you know, renting to the highest bidder in terms of who's going to pay the most for rent uh, and not necessarily developing long-term relationships. So on the leasing side, it's, it's the longer term security piece that we're offering. Um, and on the mortgage financing side, the farmers are generally, uh, it's, it's a little bit different in each geographies, but are not getting the same capital access opportunities that their conventional neighbor might have. Uh, the agricultural banks, for a variety of reasons, look at organic farming as a risk factor. Um, we, we look at it as a, as a positive. We view, view it as a growth market, a more profitable market. Yes, there's a risk with organic transition, but over, once they get that organic certification, uh, it's actually de-risked uh, in terms of their operations. So there's, there's, they're getting blocked out from some of the traditional lending opportunities. A lot of the regional banks are starting to um, remove their agricultural portfolio. Maybe their banker that covered the farmers has retired and they don't have anyone with experience or they just want to reduce their exposure to that asset class because of whatever cyclical activities are happening in the market. So we are seeing a lot of farmers actually not having good access to mortgage financing. And we view that as a, as a role that we can play. And, uh, and it's actually, we launched that business uh, a couple of years ago and it's grown from, from, you know, not having done any uh, mortgage financing to now being north of 20% of our asset base. Yeah, that's very impressive. And when you look at the land itself and the movements you see in, in beyond organic and, and regenerative agriculture, building soil, etc. What do you see in that space? Do you see a lot of new people moving in? What do you see in terms of uh, the future of uh, beyond organic as you can maybe qualify this movement? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that brings in uh, a rabbit hole that one can go very deeply down, but, but what is sustainable agriculture? And Obviously, the, the word sustainable uh, is often greenwashed by a variety of companies. And our take right now is that organic is one of the most recognized production methods that is a vast improvement over the conventional system. And the letter of the law of organic is a huge improvement over the chemical systems, but isn't necessarily the optimal system. So we work with a variety of farmers that go well beyond what the letter of the law for certified USDA, USDA organic is. And all of our farmers are focused on, on building soil health and improving the quality of the microorganisms and macroorganisms in their soil in the fields that they're working in. And that's what we're really looking for, is someone that wants to improve agriculture and what is the ultimate system and methodology that one should use. I think that's something that science is going to ultimately tease out in the next 20 to 30 years. But before we can jump to optimal, sustainable agriculture, we got to move very quickly away from the conventional system. And that's really what we're about. And we're about supporting the shift from, from chemical to organic. Once you go to organic, 
then there's going to be additional opportunities to go beyond organic and to make more improvements on soil health and, and maximize soil health. And you see that happening with our farmers in that once they get the organic certification, then the opportunities just continue to blossom uh, because of the markets that become available, because of their knowledge growing, because of getting exposure to other organic farmers and learning about new systems. And so we want to see all of our farmers working on incremental improvements. And the interesting thing, if you go back to the organic movement from the beginning, that's the basic principle of organic. It's not don't do this, don't do that. It's build your soil health, improve year by year. And we see that happening with all of our farmers. Very, very interesting. Let's switch sides to the investor part. Um, how, how has been the response? What do you see over there? I mean, 10 years is a nice amount of time. What do you have seen, for instance, if you if we look a year ago till now, it's now September 2018. Have you seen big changes? What, what has been the response so far from mainly accredited investors, if I understood correctly? What's interesting um, from my perspective is not a lot has changed in the last year in the sense that there's still a huge demand for healthy food, that growth for organic and sustainable food continues to outpace uh, the growth of the regular food market. So from the demand side, it's still growing just like it was. Um, from the supply side, we're still seeing the same constraints holding back the growth of organic production. Uh, and that's, you know, farmers not willing to change. That's the cost of transition being uh, too burdensome to the farmers. It's the conventional systems having too much of a stranglehold on the existing agricultural system that fights these changes. And so the reality is, uh, you know, on the overall level, not much has changed. We as an organization, we've obviously continued to grow every year. We continue to raise more capital. Uh, our business is atypical in terms of a private equity investment. We use an operating company approach. We don't guarantee that investors are going to get their money back in 10 years because we're going to sell the asset. That's just never going to work for our farmers if we tell the farmers like, oh, yeah, we want to work with you. But by the way, we're going to sell this farm in five to six years. And if you can't buy it, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. Our business is built on long term relationships with these farmers and we have to commit to them um, to not sell the farm um, unless they want to buy it from us. And because of that, we can't give the investors a, a defined exit. Uh, that limited the number of investors that were willing to go into this sort of non-traditional structure in the past. Fortunately, we're starting to see some of these bigger investors realize that if they really want to have impact, if they really want to support the types of businesses that they want to see, they're going to need to venture into these non-traditional investment structures. So we are seeing a lot more interest from folks that previously would have ruled us out saying, no, you don't have a defined exit. We're not going to invest in you. So that's a very positive momentum on the on the impact investing side. Yeah, which is very interesting. It's something that has come back many, many times on, on this show, like the traditional, just as the traditional way of agriculture is changing, has to change and needs to change even faster. Also, the way of investing 
six year exit or fund structures of 10 plus two when it comes to building soil, when it comes to rebuilding a food system, simply don't fit or aren't enough. And slowly but surely, like I mean, groups like you are, are putting out an example of, of another way, of another uh, another tool in the toolbox. But that me- needs to be met with investors that are ready also to put that in somewhere in their portfolio and to see that as a as an interesting investment, maybe not the one they set out to do, but the reality in agriculture is is, is this and time is is very different compared to a Silicon Valley investment. <laughs> exactly. And let's touch upon the democratization piece. I've seen soil restoration nodes, which were mostly for accredited investors. What, what has been your thinking on how to bring this to between bracket the masses and to investors like me that would like to, who are not accredited? What's your, I've, I've Again, a theme that came back, comes back many, many times. Not many in on this show, at least that I talked to. Many have the aspiration to do it and really want to get to retail and get to smaller scale. But but it's been quite tricky, except for some crowdfunding examples I've seen. So, what, what's your take on that? You want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, well, I don't want to go on a long diatribe about SEC rules uh, making my life very difficult in terms of achieving the goals that we want to achieve about democratizing impact investing But to make a long story short, it's been very difficult to raise capital um, going out to the true retail investors, the non-accredited investors, the investors that don't have a net worth above a million dollars. Fortunately, within the United States, the regulations have started to loosen a little bit and there are some opportunities. Um, We are looking to launch what is called a Regulation A offering, uh, specifically a Tier 2, also called a Reg A plus offering, that will allow us to accept basically all investors. Uh, The only limitation is the investor can invest more than 10% of their net worth or or 10% of their annual income into these types of offerings. So there is some limits on the amount that... uh, that they can invest based on their particular earnings and asset situation. But other than that, within the United States, we can accept money from, from anyone. We are working right now on putting that together. It has been a long and slow process. It is something that we have wanted to do uh, for the past few years, but there's a huge cost associated with doing so. So we needed to have the right size and scale We needed to have um, more of our ducks in a row in terms of compliance activities relating to audits and being capable of meeting other reporting thresholds that are going to be required of us. So the burden uh, on our administration side is going to be much higher. We needed to make sure we're capable of doing that. You know, all these reasons have slowed us down from when we would have liked to do this to uh, to now, our goal is to launch this offering uh, this year, later this year, and start accepting 
uh, non-accredited investors. We feel very strongly that our investment is appropriate for nearly everyone, and we want to have an offering that allows us um, to accept anyone that that views this as as appropriate for them. You know, we fortunately are dealing with a real asset, an asset that has a stable valuation, doesn't fluctuate tremendously due to market changes. Um, it's actually non-correlated to the overall marketplace. And for that reason, it's a, it's a safe and sound investment. And for these smaller investors, the more investors we have, the easier that we can provide liquidity um, for those smaller investors if, uh, if anything happens. Uh, that's obviously one of the biggest concerns of the SEC is that the smaller investor gets trapped and um, isn't able to get their money when they need to. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a wide investor base and can use that wide investor base to to help take out these smaller investors if and when they, they need liquidity. Yeah, extremely interesting. Without going too much into details, what, what would that mean for me? Could I put, what's the minimum? Is, is it a $1,000 if you already know? And what kind of um, term am I looking at? Uh, is it 10 years and uh, dividends? I mean, what, what kind of uh, structure should I think of if you can already share that? Obviously, we don't want to go across any lines, but what's the thinking there? Yeah, so we are looking at a $10,000 minimum um, there. And, and the reason for that is there's a limit on the number of investors that we can accept before we have additional compliance reporting thresholds. And uh, once we decide to cross that, we can lower the amount. But for now, we're, we're trying to make sure that we uh, don't cross those thresholds yet. There still is a lot of administration per investor, and we need to figure out how to reduce those you know, onboarding transaction costs. Uh, the investment is going to be the same as the investment that people can make right now. It's going to be equity shares in the real estate investment trust. So you as the investor would buy a share of uh, the company and that company has the diversified portfolio investment. So you actually buy the same asset that everyone else already owns, um, which is great. You get that instant diversification with your share, that existing portfolio that's generating revenue. Uh, Long-term, you would expect dividends in the two to 3% per year. Right now, we're at about 1%, so we need to continue to grow and leverage some fixed costs to hit uh, that sort of target 2 to 3%. And you would also expect uh, annual appreciation on the, on the value of the stock. Uh, in terms of liquidity, uh, it is going to be the same structure that we have right now, seven years before you can sell back to the company. Um, you know, With the, the big asterisk that anyone who's ever asked for their money back we've paid them out at whole current value um, without sort of dinging them on anything. So we, do, we don't want to have investors that don't want to be invested. We're fortunate that we have the capital, that we have a growing investor base. We can take out those investors that want out. We don't want investors coming in thinking that they're only going to be invested for a year or two. We want them thinking about seven plus years. But at the same time, we realize life circumstances change and want to be amenable. So anyone who's ever asked for their money back, we've we've given it to them at the current valuation. Every single redemption that we've had to date, the investor has made money and has made a profit on their investment over time. So we have the track record. Um, we just can't 100% commit to anything other than the, the seven years at, at this time. No, of course. 
I mean, you cannot guarantee that as you never know the amount of people that could ask in January 2019 suddenly, or I mean, that's a, yeah, that's fair enough. And if you look at, let's imagine there's, there's a theater full of smart impact investors listening to, to this podcast and they are interested in soil. They read the books. They are, they see this generation problem as well. They see that the organic farmers need to scale. A lot of land comes on the market. What would be your advice, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would be your advice to where to start if you're not in agriculture or food, but you would like to to get started on that? You would like to move some of your portfolio or a big chunk of your portfolio in that space. Well, where would you reckon both maybe let's look at the US as you know, the, the market probably a bit better. Uh, what would be a direction to take? <laughs> well, obviously sitting uh you know, working for a company that is supporting the farmers and um, supporting the systems directly in the soil, I, I would say start start with the soil. Um, and there's some asterisks there, but you you do see the the biggest problem for farmers, especially young farmers, uh, is access to land and access to capital. And those sort of go hand in hand. Um, I think if we can figure out ways to be creative and support farmers with land security, you're going to see an increase in the production of sustainable food. Uh, that's going to drive sort of the next layers, the processing. Uh, the consumer demand is there. I don't think you need to, you know, invest in ways to increase the consumer demand. I'm not sure what that would even look like, but um, the demand is there. The supply is not there, at least domestically in the United States, to meet the demand. So if we can figure out how to increase the supply, uh, the systems and the money will flow into the systems that follow, I personally believe. So I think starting with something like Iroquois Valley Farms or depending on your financial situation, maybe you can be more direct in supporting land access. Um, but something that meets the farmers where, where they need it most and meets them in a way that, that works for, for their business systems is, is essential if you want to see this grow. Um, there are a lot of landowners that I've come across that are very supportive of sustainable agriculture, uh, and, and they, they rent land to farmers for, you know, arguably below value because they want to see their that farmer, you know, have a low cost, but they're not willing to guarantee them access. And without that guarantee, they can't, the farmer can't develop the infrastructure and they can't invest the same way if they had that long-term security. So not only do you need that creative capital uh, in terms of maybe willing to be an impact investment, you also need it to be willing to make commitments long-term. Yeah, it's interesting how time comes back in, in this discussion, because why would you as a good soil building farmer try to build soil if you only have a one or two year contract? I mean, from an asset point of view, why are you building up their asset? Basically the soil, if you can be kicked off between brackets uh, a year from now. Exactly. And, and the farmers do it because that's what they believe, but they'd probably be able to do it better. If they had more more security, they'd also be able to invest in things uh, that 
have a longer lead time in terms of paying off, especially for soil building, uh, you know, bringing animals into the systems and, and working rotations. And uh, to do that, you know, fencing is needed and potentially um, to increase yields, irrigation is needed, a fishing area. And, you know, so there's a variety of infrastructure type things that um, both are beneficial to the soil and beneficial to the farmer's bottom line and diversification that, that need that, that long-term commitment. Let alone if you start speaking about trees, et cetera, which I mean, many are, are completely out of the 10 year, are extremely interesting for soil and farmers. But yeah, you need the lead time to get to 10 or sometimes 12 years before they, they are productive. Absolutely. Which basically, that's the reason you don't see many trees on farmland. I definitely think that, uh, you know, more incorporation of uh, permaculture systems needs to be brought in. And, and there's also a learning factor on that as well. Because there's not as many systems in place, the farmers aren't educated on, on how to use them. So there's a training aspect needed on that side as well, which goes a little bit beyond the, the impact investing needs. And if you look at the market on a farmer level, are there enough? Do you see enough good, capable, I mean, they, they need to be trained, obviously, but soil building farmers that that is if we would really increase the amount of capital organizations like you are, are managing and thus much more land, are there enough good farmers to, to, to farm the land and build up the soil? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we personally are inundated with requests from, from farmers. Uh, we cannot fulfill sort of the pipeline of farmers that come to us, uh, you know, and knock on wood. That's good. We get to sort of pick, uh, the cream of the crop, so to speak, and work with the best farmers. Uh, we don't even advertise in terms of trying to find new farmers. Farmers come to us mostly through word of mouth. Um, we do go to a couple of agricultural conferences a year and we'll meet some some new farmers that way. Uh, but if we had twice as much capital or three times as much capital, we'd still be able to deploy it in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, there's plenty of farmers out there that that need this. There are plenty of talented farmers around, and it's just a needed. The, the capital needs to be there. The systems need to be there, and that all that all starts with the the land security piece in my mind. And is that your like? Let's say we we talk in a year from now, September 2019. I mean, obviously, you want to launch this year the the democratization piece. Um, Will you be mostly focused on the fundraising part, as as that seems to be? But correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the big bottleneck so far, the biggest leverage point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the next year, I I sort of hope that we haven't changed too much. I hope that we're a larger company that we've you know provided access to a wider base of investors. Uh, what we need to do personally is become more efficient and continue to grow and scale and leverage our existing resources. Uh, but we are never going to get that big VC type money because we're not dealing with a company that has exponential growth opportunities. We're, we're in the soil, working with the farmers, one farm at a time. And that is a slow growth uh, business and takes time to build. And we, I just hope a year from now that we've stayed our course and are true to ourselves and are still working with the same 
great farmers and, you know, have more investors and we're always going to need to continue to grow and operate more efficiently and uh, make sure that the investors are getting the liquidity that they need, getting the dividend that is attractive to them, uh, but in a way that still is working appropriately for our farmers. And and just very briefly on exponential growth, do you see exponential growth in terms of learnings of a, of a farmer, like when they, he or she, or as a couple or as a family, go to organic and then beyond? Is there a, a speed up? I've seen it sometimes that some people get really into it and, and you can see almost that the soil, the carbon level in the soil follows the same, like uh, as it gets over a certain threshold, like the systems just begin to to turn faster as the farmer learns and learns and improves and of course adjusts a lot. Do you see that a lot happening? Like people get get into it more and, and that there is a non-linear path there? Uh, definitely in the early years. Absolutely. I think that there is, uh, when a farmer makes that commitment to organic and maybe they've been farming conventionally in the past, it's, it's drinking from the fire hose uh, is probably the best analogy, just like anything else. And there's so much to learn, so much to do. Um, and the deeper you dive, you realize the more you can go into the science and technical aspects and, um, you see some of our farmers digging very deeply into that stuff. Uh, you see a lot of our farmers taking it from a, a higher level pers- perspective, coming up with systems and rotations that work for their geographies and their markets. Uh, I think you start to see some some plateauing once you've gotten through those first uh, probably five to ten years of experience. But but even after that, there's still continual learning and. Uh, you know, I sort of talked earlier about optimal soil health, and I don't know if there is such a thing, um, but there always is opportunities to improve, and all our farmers are are looking for those, and those are not only going to develop by better science and understanding, they're going to develop by um, markets and access and uh, equipment and other techniques that are more than just um, understanding the soil biology and how are you facilitating those lessons learned those sharing between the farmers because all these pioneers even though they might operate in slightly different geographies and thus different rotation systems and obviously different markets um, there seems to be a big role for an organization like yourself to really make sure that they that they get access to this maybe a bit underground knowledge that they won't find at their neighbors Yeah, um, we're very fortunate that the farmers communicate a lot amongst their networks. You know, one of our big items when we are reviewing a farmer and their operation is understanding who they're learning from and how they're learning. So uh, we want to work with someone that is applying this concept of continuous improvement and continuing to learn. Uh, So they generally already have their existing networks. With that being said, we share information between our farmers when it might be relevant. Um, We are very supportive of our farmers going to organic farming conferences. You know, there's a whole host of great farming conferences across the United States. And uh, in the past, we've actually paid for them, their attendance to those, so that they have access to more of those farmers and have the opportunity to um, continually learn. 
I don't think, as, as I mentioned, we are going to be those in-house resident experts, but we can be a conduit for giving them, them access to those experts and encouraging that and, and making it affordable. And, uh, you know, that accrues to everyone's benefit. It's, it's beneficial for the planet because their operations improve. It's beneficial to our investors' bottom line because uh, they potentially become more profitable um, by becoming more efficient and needing less inputs and uh, becoming more holistic. So it, it really is a win-win to support those uh, types of conferences and learnings. And, um, you know, we have sponsored those conferences in the past. Uh, we want to make sure that our farmers continually to be engaged and that's uh economically feasible for them. So that's really the biggest role that, that we can help in continuing to help them develop and uh, grow their knowledge base. And in terms of impact investing, it's always a big topic, measurements. What are you measuring uh, when it comes to sustainable agriculture? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because there's so much one could measure and there's a cost for measurement, which is always tough. Right now, we are developing a soil measurement protocol, and we are going to focus on one of the big biological markers that is not, um, you know, the end-all be-all in terms of soil health, but is probably what we think as one of the biggest indicators of soil health, and that's organic matter. So we are in the process of working with a third party to develop this soil measurement protocol, which will look at organic matter over time. And we've worked with a few farmers that have already been doing this and shown that they can take farms with very low organic matter, you know, 1% and over a reasonable time period, develop that to five and, and 6%. And we want to see that over time with the farms that we're working with and the farmers businesses. And so that is our focus right now in terms of direct soil health uh, measurements. And I'm sure as science evolves and as testing becomes more reasonable, we can look and add on top of that. Um, and beyond the soil health, obviously, we we look at the number of acres that are under organic management, the number of acres that we are bringing from conventional to organic uh, the number of farm families that we are supporting, those are all important uh, metrics for our business because we're about supporting these organic farm families and increasing the number of acres in organic production. Yeah, that seemed to make a lot of sense. And maybe also the answer to the plateauing of at some point a field reaches, like it's sort of not optimum, but in, in that system, the, the maximum soil organic matter but then maybe the farmer gets restless or their neighbor wants to retire and they knock on your door to acquire the next field of one or even less percent organic matter that they can get their hands dirty again to, to yep. see even if they can get it even faster up to six or seven. <laughs> Absolutely. And just as a final question, I want to be conscious of your time. We're almost on top of the hour. If you could wave your magic wand in the industry, not necessarily for, for the company itself, what would you change to make regenerative agriculture and, re and actually regenerative food as well more accessible, more mainstream? What would be the one thing, one barrier that you would take away uh, with your magic wand? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. And 
from my perspective, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet, right? There is a whole host of issues that, that need to be addressed within the agricultural system. Uh, what I personally think would have the most benefit um, sort of improving the agricultural landscape would be re removing the systems that encourage and allow for confined feeding operations. I think if you can bring animals back into the Just farm. Just to be clear, CAFOs, factory farms. Exactly. You bring the animals back onto the farm, eating their natural diet, uh, especially the animals that are grazers. Uh, that is going to do wonders for a whole host of environmental problems caused by factory farms. Uh, it's going to force farmers to bring animals back into the land, which is uh, better for the soil management. It's going to provide farmers opportunities to diversify. It's going to create food that is more healthy for humans. I mean, there's tons of studies that show the, you know, especially on, on milk specifically, that show the increase in nutrient content of pasture-raised milk versus um, industrial uh sort of milk operations where they're, they're just tied up all day. Uh, and that's the same for pasture-raised meat. I don't think you're going to change the consumer's behavior in terms of how much meat they want. Um, I think that trend is going to continue to be there. I also think that there's, you know, production systems uh, that's essential to have animals on the land. So I don't want to change that system. But if you can improve the way meat is raised – um, there's going to be a whole host of benefits, both environmentally and socially, because you're feeding the population with uh, better quality meat. And um, you know, so that would probably be the biggest thing that that I would like to see changed in the system. And that's going to do a you know would make a huge dent. But there's still tons of other work that would need to be done. Yeah, obviously. And with that, I, I would like to thank you, Kevin, for, for your time this morning. And um, I'll definitely be checking in how the democratization piece is going, the fundraising in general, and of course, the allocation, soil management or measurement levels. It, it all sounds extremely necessary and, and interesting. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Cohen. You just listened to an interview with Kevin Egov, CFO of Iroquois Valley Farms. I hope you learned something about how you can put money to work to help farmland transition towards organic and beyond organic and into longer term hands, farm hands actually, while helping the next generation of family farmers grow. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.